Hey everybody, this is our final episode before our Los Angeles sound design meetup at 7 p.m. on February 28th, 2023. It's at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City. If you are in the LA area, it would be great to see you and raise a glass together. We have the outdoor patio set aside for us. Full details can be found at tonebenderspodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Tonebenders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I will be your host as we talk with the sound team behind the Rings of Power. This is going to be a fun talk, but no matter how the path winds, much like our Harfoot Hobbit friends, we will face it with hearts even bigger than our feet. Lord of the Rings is Prime's prequel saga to the immensely popular Lord of the Rings trilogy from two decades ago. It had a tall order living up to the iconic sounds from those films, while also pushing the sound design even further. Joining us are co-supervising sound editors Damien Del Borello and Robert Stambler. Hello to both of you. Welcome to Tonebenders. Hey, Tim. Hi. Thanks for having us. Awesome. It's good to see you. We also have the show's sound designer, Paula Fairfield. Most of our listeners will remember Paula from her last time on Tonebenders, one of our most popular episodes ever, episode number 99, our sound design for VFX roundtable. She was awesome on that show. It's great to have you back, Paula. Welcome back to Tonebenders. Hey, glad to be here. So uh, the first question I'm going to ask you is probably one you're maybe even sick of answering, but I, I feel like it's something that we have to dig into. The original films that this is a prequel to are extremely well-respected sound films. They uh, came up with many iconic sounds. And now you're uh, being thrown into this with, I'm sure, uh, different tools, a different world, a different size crew. How did you go about deciding how much you wanted to live in that previous world and how much you wanted to expand or or deviate from it? Maybe, Damien, do you want to tackle that first? Yeah, sure. Well, I guess um, for me, being in New Zealand, one of the main drivers of me coming over here was to actually work with some of those guys who worked on the original films. Personally, I felt a real responsibility to the legacy that those films uh, sort of gave us. Having said that, I was sort of, second on the show after Robbie Stambler. Um, so Robbie, Robbie Stambler was um, sort of the lead before I jumped on. So I, I guess I'll leave it to Robbie to, to talk a little bit about his motives and his ideas. For me, it was a real balance between paying homage, but also trying to do something, something new and something fresh. Because we didn't, we didn't just want to tread the same old ground, but the legacy is so epic and so loved. To not tap into that uh, would have just been a bit a bit foolish. So I really hope we, we got there in the end. Uh, I like to think we did. But uh, what do you think, Robbie? Well, I mean, I remember um, it was a very formidable age I was at when those films were coming up. And, and I was, you know, really interested in film. And I was a DVD special feature junkie. And I recall <laughs> that that series probably has more BTS on it on DVD special features than like anything ever created. I remember watching special features about the creation of the sound, and I mean, it really, uh, it's such a high bar that was set, and 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 here we are all these years later, and um, it's kind of become the industry standard kind of approach to, you know, these larger-than-life set pieces and dealing with visual effects and all that. So I have to say, like, it was actually quite comforting, you know, as opposed to coming to something that has no expectations, that there's no sort of fingerprint that an audience can recognize. 
previous to working on this show, I had worked on a couple of the Star Wars films and a Star Trek film uh, with J.J. Abrams. And working on projects that already have the sonic world that the audience comes to expect, it's a challenge because you have to create new things that can sit alongside them. But it's also a bit comforting because you know that you're going to a place that other people have gone to before. Paula, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I, you know, I loved the movies when they came out. And having worked on a number of films and series in this kind of genre of, you know, this fantasy genre, kind of medieval times, whatever, uh, it was, you know, this was kind of the pinnacle, right? Um, and so, but what was really kind of cool for me coming on this, having worked on Thrones, Thrones was often compared because it was, you know, the Lord of the Rings series was kind of the standard everybody was sort of reaching for. And it was fascinating to me, and it may seem obvious, but I don't know, I hadn't really thought about it deeply until, you know, I jumped in later after you guys had already been on for a bit. The differences between, you know, Game of Thrones world and the Lord of the Rings, because, you know, this world is full. I mean, there's a lot of grit and dirt and, and you know, it's like the kind of, you know, ultimate battle of good and evil. But there's so much hope in this world. And it was kind of beautiful, you know, as opposed to Game of Thrones, which kind of is the antithesis. There's like <laughs> no hope. <laughs> um and it was, uh, I found it to be a really beautiful and interesting experience. And it was everything I had hoped and more, really, while I was uh, on this with these guys. As someone who works in sound as well, some of the hardest things to come up with and make sound fresh and new are creature vocals and magic sounds. And there are a lot of both of those in this series. I was wondering if maybe we could, you know what, before we get into sci-fi or uh, imagined creatures there is a moment in this show that i found really amazing because it's super hard to do but the way you did it it just went by without even thinking about it right before the giant uh volcano eruption and i think it's episode six maybe the horses realize that something is wrong before any of the people do and there's just this quiet moment before all hell breaks loose where uh, a father and son are with a horse and the horse is panicking and the horse is making sounds I've never heard a horse make before, but sound entirely like a horse. How did you make that happen? Because there's really only like three sounds that we automatically equate with a horse. But a horse panicking, I'd never heard before. I mean, I'm just such a sound library nerd. I'm all day, every day, finding stuff, digging through my stuff. Yeah, I just happened to have this library of horses that was privately recorded for a project. And it, it it has just sort of your average day-to-day -day stuff. A lot of that's just the horse breathing, you know, and it's keeping it alive over the course of the scene. I remember uh, when we were cutting it, you want it to be alive off screen while they're having their conversation the entire time. Also, I have to say the horse did a great job acting. <laughs> <laughs> so it was easy. It was easy to put in. The labored breaths um, and sort of uh, emotion uh, that comes from the animal, you can't, I mean, Paula is, in, is so incredibly talented in so many ways. And one of, one of the many talents that she brought to this project in particular was animal emotion. And that's such, that's the thing we're always striving for in the recordings. 
and you could have the you know the highest fidelity recording, but if there's no emotion behind it, or you could have the lowest fidelity, but it's got the most emotion and it becomes the most effective. So it's really just trying to find that stuff that tugs at your heartstrings. It's believable. Paula, what's the secret to giving animals emotions? Come on, spill the beans. I'm sure it's a two-sentence <laughs> answer, right? <laughs> well, a lot of the stuff that I'm called on, but whether it's real or whether it's um, something we want to believe in, you know, it's it's fully constructed. And, and you know, like, like Robbie and, and I'm sure Damon too, it's like, you know, we spend hours, I, I spend hours listening to animal stuff and I love it. I mean, it's, you know, to be able to, especially in this kind of cruel world we're in right now, to be able to sit and listen to animal animals vocalize is quite beautiful. And for me, you know, there are lots of approaches to creature design. I know a lot of people use human stuff too. And I've done that over the years and tried, but when it gets right down to it, you know, for me, I always use animal, I like to use pure animal vocals and babies <laughs> because both are, when they make a sound, it's a primal emotion. It's full of it. There's no agenda. There's no acting. It's an actual expression of emotion. And, you know, for me, the creation of a creature is the kind of, curation and manipulation of these sounds you know it's you know we're creating performances essentially it's like what robbie was talking about with the horse or whatever you know it's we're creating these characters and and they're part of our world like our animals you know we all have dogs or cats or whatever i mean it's like if you live with these creatures you hear them respond to stuff you know like the horses for instance in this sequence responding before the people i mean how many of us you well, especially on the west coast have had the experience of our animals acting weird and then we have a little earthquake you know they always know before us you know so i learned i've learned a lot of that observing my own animals over the years and it really is about like Rob was saying is like as you're playing through the material being aware of how you're responding to a sound and then building that and using that and manipulating it and putting it back in in the in the creature's mouth to give that feeling you know whatever the beats of the scene are so that they become part of that scene and when they do it pulls the viewer in closer because it's very i mean if you have even a few beats of those em emotional tugs, I mean, it's a great place for the viewer to enter the story in a very kind of easy way and become start to become emotionally attached to the sequences. So I always look for those opportunities. You know, it's like very opportunistic in a way, like finding those little little bits that you can. And I've been asked by producers over the years, it's like, you know, I know on Thrones, I've been asked many times to say, okay, we want want you to make people cry. You know, it's like, how can I find those moments? What are those moments in our own real worlds with our animals that breaks our heart or makes us or startles us because they make a sound that we're not, you know, familiar with and we're aware that something is going on. So, yeah. Sorry, that wasn't very short, but... <laughs> I know, I wanted it to be long. I was being sarcastic about it being short. Obviously, you couldn't answer that in a couple sentences. It's a, the question we spend our whole careers trying to figure out the answer to. Uh, did you have a creature on the Rings of Power that you especially liked putting together? I liked them all. You know, it was interesting because when I was brought on, the the, the main directive was 
that they wanted these creatures, especially the imagined ones, to be like a documentary, like you happened upon them in nature, you know? And for me, that's my favorite sandbox. It's something I like to call like speculative realism. If they existed in the real world, what would they sound like? And I, I like them all. I love the wolf pack. I, you know, love the snow troll and, and Kitte, as we called her. The, and I called her Kitty because producers gave notes that they absolutely wanted no cat sounds. And so I called her Kitty for that, but mostly to remind myself to not use any cat sounds. But it became a running joke about Kitty. She spelled her name K-I-T-T-E-H. And, <laughs> and I, I mean, they were all really fun to put together because when they're imagined creatures and they start to come alive you know for me my five-year-old gets very excited and my inner five-year-old it's like oh my god there it is you know and you know when it starts to happen and it's i don't know it never that's a feeling that never gets old it was probably one of the the funnest parts when robbie would receive a, a package from paula he'd, he'd be like hey damo 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 come 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 check this out and we'd sit down and would review it and it would always lead to just this absolute gushing over paula and her work <laughs> and it was um i mean it was just sort of you know on a practical sense you know like we we're just like great send it to the stage you know like ready to go <laughs> but we would we would sort of try try and find notes to give paula but it was just like oh man this is it <laughs> this just feels so good <laughs> you can't really have a conversation about the creatures of the show without mentioning uh jason smith uh jason smith is the visual effects producer absolute genius there's so many geniuses that were involved in making the show that in turn made our job a flow in a really nice way. You know, the production design, um, the creature design. Jason and I would have uh, short conversations that were so fruitful and provided so much information and backstory and ideas on each creature's sort of character, emotional state, physical well-being. For instance, um, when Jason would talk about the snow troll, in episode one, this idea that this troll has kind of been locked into this ice cave and everything's frozen and there's no water to drink and its voice is incredibly hoarse and um, it's agitated and hungry and that raspiness uh, of the voice, you know, Paula took that little nugget and ran with it and created this, you know, really dry, scratchy throat feeling. When it comes to Kite, the warg, this idea that this creature is actually is a female warg. She's like an alpha dominant female and she's like incredibly powerful and angry. And it's like little little pieces like that that we can get from either production design or uh, visual effects. They go such a long way. Like I always say with sound, like you give us an inch, we'll give you a mile. And they gave us feet. So, you know, we tried to return, you know, as much distance as possible. One creature I just have to say I love, it's the smallest little thing, but the birds that fly over the ship when they're when they're sailing to Valinor, there's something about those birds, Paula, that to this day, it's just so emotional. And I think that like it, what you did uh, with the, the vocal design and then the way it sits with the music and the sort of delay and reverb and sort of slap effects that we put on in, in the mix, it just, it's so emotional. I just love it. 
That was such a complex sequence with all of that music and all of the, uh, you know, the thundering and the, the cracking open of the air, you know. That's, I guess, also a big credit to Lindsay Alvarez and uh, Bo Borders, our mixers, to make that work. There was so much going on for the whole time. And at any given point, it, there's so much clarity as well. It's just an incredible job that they did on that sequence. The other thing that I mentioned earlier that's super hard to do sound design for is magic, which there is a lot of magic. And the magic has to feel like it's coming from different, I don't know if worlds, but there's kind of uh, good magic, bad magic and mysterious magic. Uh, Do you want to talk about how you tackled uh, the different kinds of magic? Yeah, I mean, with all this sort of sci-fi-ish fantasy stuff in the show, our goal was always to ground it in reality and to make it feel of the world and not something slapped on top. I actually took a great inspiration from the original films. There's a scene uh, where Saruman's casting a spell and the fellowship is up on the mountain hiking and he basically conjures uh, the storm to grow stronger and it all starts with his voice and he's like giving these incantations and you know, it's echoing through the mountains and then the storm comes. And that to me was like an incredible recipe. So leaning into that, trying to create a sort of cause and effect, the cause would come, you know, like Damo, I'm thinking those early, uh, those early scenes that we worked on with The Stranger, where he's kind of performing, you know, the, the beat of magic with the fireflies. There's the moment where he's uh, drawing the stars in the dirt and Nori comes up and surprises him. He gets upset and things start to break out and go wild. Starting with the cause being his voice and we played with like a lot of different um, echo effects and reverb effects to kind of create this sense that his voice is escaping into the world and then affecting the world and creating winds and rumbles and earth and leaves blowing and and trees cracking and really just trying to do anything but sci-fi right but of course you do have to kind of go there at some points you know there's there's small moments of magic and then there's very large moments of magic another thing that was difficult just tackling that is point of view because very often in these sort of magical scenes there's intercut between when you're sort of in the magical experience and then you're jumping out to observers of the magical experience that might not be fully tuned into what's happening magically, but they're kind of just seeing, you know, the effect of it on the world. So like in the big end battle with the mystics and, and, and the stranger, we tried to create this world, this bubble world where only the magic makers would live. And then the Harfoots who are sort of a part of this action and witnessing it or outside of it. I think the thing that ended up doing that, selling that idea, was this sort of connection between the magic makers. And at the beginning of that scene, you know, the mystics are sort of, they're telling the stranger like, oh, you know, you're one of us, you're going to come with us. They're almost seducing him in this way. And trying to create a sort of sonic cone bubble where it's just them. And it's just their voices. And you'll hear some sort of really cool, like, ping-pongy delay effect on their voices to really sell the sense that they're in their own world. And then throughout the magic of that sequence, as the action builds, that sort of ping-pongy delay echo effect on their voices builds and is bigger and larger. And then we just cut out to, you know, the Harfoots that are just witnessing it. All the magical stuff would be gone, and you'd just be witnessing the physicality of it. 
So point of view was really, really helpful in doing all that. And, you know, we did have to get tonal and do some out-of-the-box, strange, magical, you know, sounding stuff. But we always wanted to limit that and really only hit that button when we needed to, to be effective and root it in as much reality as possible. And that was really the ethos of the show, just in general, is to make it really feel like a documentary, make it feel real, so that when we do get weird, it uh, has contrast and it's believable and it's grounded. Do you have anything to add to that, Damien? I guess getting back to that idea of um, also paying homage to the original films a little bit. So one thing that I was thinking about a lot was the ring time moment in the original films as the, as the ring goes onto Frodo's finger and he goes into the unseen world. They established a really awesome sound in there, which was essentially like the sound of Sauron. Um, and it's sort of his voice. But like, well, the question was, without the ring, what does that sound like? Right. So um, there was uh, quite a bit of experimenting with sort of voice and incantation sort of stuff. It's sort of what what Robbie was talking about um, before. But we got this little snippet of um, incantation, which was in Elvish, just kind of performed that in in the booth and just did some really simple processing it and sort of used that all throughout in sort of little moments. And that sort of created, created a little bit of a connection. But I guess conceptually, working conceptually, I kind of was right into the um, the Lord of the Rings, uh, with the Tolkien wiki page. So I would um, I would just jump on there whenever we got like, you know, new characters coming through or new places. And I, I just sort of, that was where I, where I did my research. And so I came across this idea of Iluvatar, the, you know, the, the creator, the godlike figure. And I guess I sort of put the whispers and sort of attached that to that character. And so then it became about like all the power, all the magic actually comes from this omnipotent being, but is performed through through the characters, whoever's whoever's performing the magic, and sort of that worked um, in parts and didn't work in other parts, and we and it sort of developed over the course of the the, the season. But I think it was a just a, a nice way to sort of create a motif for the magic, and obviously depending on what the, what the magic's doing, like the, the scene that Robbie was just talking about with the mystics, that had these giant energy wave type sounds. And so we didn't really need the whispers in there because it sort of, it was being carried by all, by all this other incredible sound design that Paula and, and Robbie was, were working on. And so it was, a, a, I guess, an opportunity to sort of pull away a little bit from those original films and develop something, something new for the, for the magic. I think, I think it worked really well. In almost every answer that you've given me so far, someone has mentioned some variation of the idea of it feeling documentary, like grounded, really real. I think where that all starts is with the ambiences. And the ambiences in this show are places that Middle Earth, is it, uh, it is Earth or is it not Earth? Like it's, it's got to be somewhat Earth-like, but also not Earth-like. And also you're going to places that have been established before, like the Mines of Moria, but uh, they're entirely different than what we were have established before. So maybe if you can talk about how you made the, the whole world come to life through the ambiences. I'll tackle it for sure. I mean, the, the, the ambiences is, is to me, it's, it's absolutely key. And it's the first thing I do. And it's the, it's the way that I can get into a project. Um, all starts with production design, right? I mean, the Ramsey Avery, the production designer of the series, is so incredible. His, his designs are so rich, so full, 
And when you're given a palette like that to work with, you just want to expand it and just grow it further and expand uh, the sound beyond what you're seeing on the screen. Also, you know, the Lord of the Rings, like the, one of the reasons that people love this, that, that people love this series is the setting. I mean, the world of the show is it's, it's an actor. It's one of the stars of the show. It always has been. It's, you know. They, you know, filmed in New Zealand. I mean, it's the real Middle Earth. It's a beautiful place. So you have to honor uh, that sort of that star and you got to serve it. And then it's so rich and there's so much variety in Middle Earth. You know, we've only in, in season one, you know, you're only really you're experiencing a certain area of the map and there's a much larger world and there's other places to explore that you'll eventually see. But even within just the scope of our season, there's so much variation. And then you also have the uh, different races to play with, you know, the, the, the way the world of the humans of Middle-earth sound versus the way the world of Numenor sounds, which is a completely different biosphere and landscape. Um, you know, the sounds of the Harfoots and uh, the dwarves and all that. So it all starts with the production design. If you can visit a set, if you can walk a set, if you can go to a location if you can flip through production design drawings and art department resources, all of that stuff is just golden. Apart from that, you just take your cues from the screen and you, you want to really put a lot of thought into it and you want to be serious about it. Like when I'm cutting an ambience, I'm thinking about elevation. I'm thinking about temperature. I'm thinking about all of the creatures that can exist off the screen. And then you can think about, well, what does that character that's in the story, how are they feeling in this space? And then you can steer the sort of world that you created into different vibes and different feelings. I mean, that's some of my most favorite stuff is, you know, making it feel extremely dynamic. So putting a lot of care, a lot of thought into all of these things. It's so funny, like at the end of the day, it ends up being the smallest little thing. You can barely hear it. It's there, but you can barely hear it. But for what it does for an audience, it's unbelievable and so under the radar. It's so fun to do. You know, the first thing you need to do when you're doing ambiences for Middle Earth is gather all natural, no noise pollution, nothing from the modern world, no airplanes, no helicopters, no car. I mean, it's just the funnest world to be in and it's so comforting and relaxing i mean i gotta tell you some of the funnest times we're just cutting ambiences on the show because it's just there's not big scary loud things coming out of my speakers it's just like rivers and streams and birds and winds and leaves and you know <laughs> ocean i mean it's just it's the most pleasurable experience ever my my cats would come and lay on my desk and and just and then the second you know the ice troll would start roaring they'd run out of the room <laughs> robbie do you remember do you remember the, the, the first couple of weeks when we were on the show and we were getting the we had we had great access to, to the production rushes and and we would just we would just sit together in Robbie's room and just watch these beautiful shots of like uh, rolling hills with brown wheat like crops and, and, and lush uh, forests and it was like literally an hour out of Auckland, just up the road, but just the way it was all shot and it was um, uh, it, it was just a pleasure because you could just see it. You just go, ah, oh, okay, that's how it sounds. We know, we know exactly what that should sound like. And to have access to, to that, to see the rushes rolling through, but then also to have access to some of the um, concept designs for these locations. You know, the, that work on its own should 
go in a frame on on a wall. They're incredible. Some of those some of those concept designs. Uh, you know, it sort of it gave us so much direction and just just allowed us to to go there before we even saw that lot of uh, rushes coming in. So I, I think that was something that was unique on this show for me. The, just that access to to all of that additional material that you wouldn't normally get. Yeah, we were brought on uh, really early. I mean, day one of shooting, Damien and I were on the show. Lindsay Weber, the producer of the show that I had worked with at Bad Robot on previous projects, JJ's world uh, was like everybody's all together and not everybody's sort of in their own department. So yeah, like having access to the art department and being able to go and visit the set, it's like so incredible. See the costumes. I mean, there's so much work that went into creating the world that it gave us so much ammo to then go back to our studios and try and cook up the greatest things, you know, just giving everybody a different flavor. So like the way Numenor sounds, you know, warm and tropical and lush, you know, humid, like what's the, you know, what what does humid air sound like versus a, you know, dry, barren air or hot air, cold air, you know, all these little details we would try and sell. I mean, really, if you can get the ambience feeling right, everything else just kind of fits into place. Every little hard effect or every little piece of foley can just sit in there and, and feel complete. So yeah, I love ambiences. Once I complete them, I feel like I'm fully in and I understand the world completely. And if I have to like jump and start cutting stuff without doing ambiences, it's like so hard to wrap my brain around the aesthetic of like what we're doing. (laughs) Robbie, you're in L.A. right now, right? Yeah, I'm in California. Did you go to New Zealand for the production? You you were mentioning being in the same room as Damien. So uh, how'd that work? Yeah. So, oh, man, this was such an adventure. It was such a mission. So. Uh, yeah, like I, so when I I was first brought on uh, with by Jake Rice, Ron Ames, um, Lindsey Weber uh, in California, I had interviewed with them, and they were talking about the show. You know, we're gonna go and shoot it in New Zealand. We're gonna be doing all of our editorial in New Zealand. Then we're gonna wrap up in New Zealand. We're gonna come back and we're gonna post it in California. We'll mix it and finish it here in California. I said, okay, cool. That sounds great. They wanted me to actually move to New Zealand and be there for the entire duration of the production to be like an all-hands-on-deck approach to really help editorial, get tracks in early, help them flesh it out. And I I didn't want to move there full-time, but I did say, you know, I'll definitely go there for a few months and help you kick it off, make sure everybody's comfortable and feels good. So um, that time actually was so valuable for so many reasons. Um, Damien and I had never worked together before. This is our first project together. And we spent a lot of quality time together and the, those, these early times. By the way, this is 2020, right before the pandemic. That's when all this is happening. One thing also that I just want to bring up is when I was over, I, it was like a Saturday and I really, really wanted to create, I think it's always important to create a shared sort of dialogue about, you know, movies and, and, and it could be video games or just sounds that you like with your creators, right? So I actually hosted a screening on a Saturday night of Apocalypse Now, the Dolby Atmos remix. It's like my favorite movie of all time, my favorite sounding movie. And a bunch of the producers, the showrunners came. We all just sat and watched this movie and bonded over it. And like, it was like such a fun moment. It was so fun. Damien and I would spend uh, all this time together. Uh, We'd go visit the cutting room if they needed anything. You know, we were there to support them. But then, you know, pandemic happened and um, we all kind of split and then uh, regrouped later. So, yeah, we were originally together in New Zealand for about a month. 
So, Paula, something that I've worked with people uh, on shows that have uh, had crews in other continents, and something that I've really enjoyed is you can get up in the morning while other people are still sleeping and work without getting 50 emails every 15 minutes. Uh, was that something that worked out for you on this show? What, did you get that calm before the storm each day? And then as the other side of the world started waking up, I guess it's not too different LA and New Zealand, but how did you experience working with people uh, in New Zealand, the time zones and such? Well, once Robbie left LA, thank God, then I got some <laughs> No, I'm I protected I'm you. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, it's, you know, it, it's all workable. You know, with COVID now, the work from home thing is less of a deal. I mean, I've always worked from home. I've never not worked from home. So I'm used to it. And I'm Canadian. And for the first few years, when I moved to the States, I still was working with Canadian crew. And that was back before we even had decent you know, high-speed internet and stuff. I used to ship drives via FedEx and whatnot. So, yeah, you're getting to a vibe of it. it. It takes a little pressure off. It's completely a lie because it's not like you get any extra time, really, but it feels like that somehow, you know, before I send something, you know, finish something up at the end of the day, get up early, prep it, you know, to give myself some space before I send it off, make sure, you know, she get hearing fatigue at the end of the day, whatever, especially on the loud stuff. And, and I tend to get up early. The dogs wake me up anyway. So I adapt to whatever it is and it's all cool. I mean, it gives, depending on where the main crew is, it gives each show a different vibe, you know, and this New Zealand vibe was different for me because we're what, like 18 hours difference or something. So it was like a really interesting cycle to get into. But, you know, it's all for me, it's just about having enough time to like, complete the work, have a break, listen to it again, make sure I'm happy with it before sending it off and then getting it out and just backing into all the deadlines. So but, you know, with all the internet and stuff, and we had a pretty cool system, even when Robbie was in New Zealand, we used uh, Amazon Chime, we chit-chat constantly or get on, and I like to talk because I, I hate the texting thing, because you don't hear people's voices, you don't hear the intonation, you don't hear, you know, I so I, when Robbie and I would kind of be, you know, banging through ideas, we get on and have a coffee and sit and chit chat. And it, it was really nice, you know, and it's like, I mean, sound design anyway, by its nature is a very solitary kind of job. It tends to be certainly the way I do it. And uh, I would actually quite look forward to my daily chit chats with Mr. Stambler. So we had, we had a great time actually having fun, throwing jokes back and forth and, you know, really kind of vibing into the show and finding the best ways into some sequences, which were, you know, of course, very, very complex, a lot to kind of pick apart and figure out, but it was really uh, fun. I, the one thing I missed on this show was that I know it was a pretty solid, cool crew. And I, you know, my own, my only real connection was with Robbie. So I didn't really get to interact much with the rest of the crew, which was, it's always a bit of a bummer, but I always feel connected through the work. So I would hear everybody's work, you know, Robbie would send me crash downs and it's like, you know, you feel like, I mean, it felt very 
exciting to be part of that and see it all coming together and hear the stuff as it was coming through. And it always kept me inspired, you know, just hearing what everybody else was doing. Damien, how did you like working with all these North Americans? Yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing because uh, if you look at the history, like from from those original films, there's there's actually like a real legacy of collaboration between New Zealand crews and American crews. And it didn't just stop with those first films. There's there's a whole, a whole list of films um, since then that have had that sort of collaboration. And I think it's one, it's really cool to sort of continue that. But also it's, it's cool with a completely new generation. You know, um, we're, sort of, we're, we're, we're sort of like all independent sort of freelancers. We're not all under like some big facilities roof. It's like a, a new, the new model for, for this sort of collaboration. And the technology is great now. You know, we, had, uh, we used this, this awesome um, system called Resilio Sync, and it just kept, kept everything um, secure, but also in sync. Um, like we had a, a essentially like a virtual server between all of our computers. I'm on a couple of shows at the moment that are, that's doing the same thing. So it's going to be for me. I think it's just going to be the way the way to work from now on. I mean, we're using Resilio Sync with crew just around New Zealand. Um, you know, up up in Auckland, uh, down in Omoru in, in central Otago, there's a um, a dialogue editor like three streets over from me right now um, who's also on Resilio Sync. It's just another way of um, way of, of connecting and, and sort of making that workflow really seamless. And you can't say the word workflow without mentioning the word Andrew. Andrew Moore, oh. uh, who oh is our <laughs> assistant sound editor, who is an absolute genius on every single level. Um, one of the many geniuses that um, Damien was able to gather from New Zealand to uh, to aid us in this. Because, yeah, I mean, the crew was large and it would expand and, and it would shrink down and, and it needed to be liquid and, and grow when necessary and go fast, go slow. So oh, this person's going to you know, needs this, needs that. And the entire workflow and data management and all of the behind the scenes work so that the work can happen. It could have just been a nightmare, but it wasn't. It was a complete dream. And, and you know, Andrew, Andrew is really needs to be, uh, his praises need to be sung completely for spearheading that. And, you know, it started slow. It was just Damien and I for a while, and our system would kind of expand as we needed to. And then ultimately, you know, we had this workflow where, I mean, it was just seamless, you know. I mean, we're dealing with eight episodes. We'd have eight episodes in play at a time, four to five reels per episode, and you're getting visual effects updates. I mean, the amount of work that you could drown in, just getting the material in a place for people to work on it, it was just incredible. And, and he just made it feel so effortless. Yeah, I think it's worth uh, mentioning sort of the, the, the way in which we were getting things turned over as well. Like it just started with sequences. So we would get these bite-sized pieces across a few different episodes, and then that would slowly increase to you know more episodes but then all of a sudden we would actually it, it would take the shape of a, a reel and then we'd get a reel turned over but we'd still be working in sequences down the line andrew moore is credited as a first assistant but i think that's a like a miss miscredit like it's more like a new role he's he was like the manager we could not have worked we couldn't couldn't have gotten through so many changes in such a short period of time without him I think uh, with his background as one of the developers of Matchbox, we couldn't, couldn't have gotten through so many 
changes in such a short period of time without him. Well, I'm so glad that you did figure it all out and were able to complete such an epic first season of Rings of Power. Thanks so much for talking with me about it today. If anyone has not seen the series yet, make sure to check it out soon. It was great talking with you, Damien, Robbie, and Paula. I look forward to speaking with you all again in the future. Thanks so much, Timothy. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. If you're a big fan of the Lord of the Rings world, stay tuned to our feed because we just completed an amazing talk with some of the sound team from the original trilogy of films. It's an absolute can't miss. This episode was volunteer edited by Andrew Malad. Andrew is a Los Angeles-based freelance audio engineer and music producer. You can follow them on Twitter or Instagram at ShubuTime. That's S-H-U-B-U-T-I-M-E. Thanks so much, Andrew. This is our final episode before our Los Angeles sound design meetup at 7 p.m. on February 28, 2023. It's at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City. If you are in the LA area, it would be great to see you and raise a glass together. We have the outdoor patio set aside for us. Full details can be found at ToneBendersPodcast.com. On behalf of Robbie, Paula, and Damien, my name is Tim Muirhead. Thanks for listening. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at ToneBendersPodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the ToneBenders and join ToneBenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.